HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is presented by Forever Cheese. Learn more at forevercheese.com. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Dan Petrosky. We are wandering into new territory this episode. The Grape Nation will be powered by artificial intelligence using ChatGPT. We'll explain in a minute. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. So this will be the first wine podcast employing artificial intelligence with ChatGPT, using the platform to help us conduct our interview with Dan Petrosky. A little about Dan, really doesn't need an introduction, but Brooklyn own, Brooklyn's own Dan Petrosky made his way west to settle in California. In between, he attended Columbia, NYU Biz School, a career in marketing, finance, and advertising. So we know Dan's a smart guy. Um, time spent learning wine in Sicily, which was very influential. And of course he did more. Once he got to Napa, he made his way to Larkmead Vineyards in 2006. At one point later on, Dan was juggling two wine brands. He recently left Larkmead to focus on his Massacan wines, a true devotion to Italian white wines made in California. Welcome back to the Grape Nation, Dan. Thank you very much, Sam. Uh, that was a great bio. I need to uh, record that and reuse it. There you it. go. Just download the show. All right. So we have a very cool show in store for everyone. A little background. I came up with an idea to attempt to do the first AI or artificial intelligence wine podcast. And I figured the easiest way to do that was to integrate ChatGPT into the show. Um, it became evident to me that if I was going to do this, I needed the perfect guest. And the first person that came to mind to me for all the reasons or a lot of the reasons I described in the uh, intro was Dan. 
And my intuitions were correct because when I reached out to him, he didn't flinch, you know, on positively responding. And I knew Dan was tech savvy, but he also told me that, you know, for the last year or so, he's been dicking around with AI. So this is something, you know, that he's entrenched himself in a little. So, Dan, that's the setup. But before we get into, you know, doing the... uh, the chat GPT show. I was hoping uh, you can get me up to speed as to what you're doing and, you know, what's going on at Massacan, which is really where you're putting all your time, energy, and sweat. No, I appreciate it, Sam. And I thank you for reaching out about this. It's a very interesting topic. Obviously, it's uh, top of mind for everybody, uh, including myself. And I look forward for you and I to dig in a little bit. Um, but yeah, Masakan these days, I've, uh, I'm putting all my time, energy and effort and money into growing this <laughs> brand. And it is, uh, it's really important to me at this stage of the, of the life cycle of Masakan, which is, you know, has garnered a lot of, uh, critical and peer and support in the community, the wine community. And I feel very fortunate about that. Um, but it was, it was really small. I mean, I was making... 60,000 bottles a year, you know, not that much wine, you're just uh, around 5,000, a little under 5,000 cases. And it is, um, you know, my goal is to, to kind of bring more white wine to the people as you bring wine to the people through your podcast intro, right. like your tagline. And uh, in order to do that, I needed to be able to focus my energies 100%. Because as we kind of think about where white wine grapes are grown in California, they're not necessarily grown you know, and the heart of Napa Valley and, and Sonoma County, because there's a, there's a lot more uh, emphasis put on red wine grapes. So it, uh, and in order, in order to go farther afield or afoot, I needed to uh, free up some uh, more time, some more drive time, some more um, kind of comfortability getting out of my, my zone of uh, just being a Napa Valley winemaker. And so I'm spending a lot of my energy and effort kind of getting to know um, new wine grape growing regions and, and viticultural areas and, and new people in the industry, new viticulturists, new vineyard grape growers, um, and some new winemakers as well along the way. So the biggest challenge is, it's not a challenge, but you have to expand and the challenge is flanging out and finding these growers, you know, that live up to your standards. Is it fair to say it's that much harder because you're very specific on the varietal, white, mostly Italians? So, yeah, so white wine is uh, Masakan's be-all and end-all. Um, everyone asks if I've ever produced red wine grapes. I'm not necessarily sure there's something in the red wine grape family in California that I feel represents the ethos of Masakan right now. Um, wow. So, so I do um, I do feel comfortable continuing to expand my network with uh, with. A, white wine grapes, especially Italian white wine grapes. (laughs) I'll jokingly say, I'll jokingly say, you know, not a lot of people know what Falangina is supposed to taste like or Greco or Pinot Bianco or Fiano or, you know, these are still... Bola Giallo, you know, any of that. Bola Giallo. These are still um, small production grape varieties in their own native country of Italy. Um, So to even see them here in California, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. So I feel um, from a qualitative perspective, I have a lot of uh, flexibility because I'm introducing um, some new flavor profiles and some new textures in my wines. And um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that my flexibility is about my quality control is going to be there and my winemaking etiquette is going to be there. 
But uh, with regards to the taste flavor profile, I think that opens up a bigger window of what someone would be would say is qualitative or not, because it's new flavors and new flavors are a big part of the uh, a big part of like this, uh, this, you know, how people judge wine. Is it delicious or not? If it's not delicious, you're going to think it's bad quality. If it's delicious, right. you're going to you're immediately going to say it's good quality. So I think that I have some freedom and flexibility now that I'm working with 11 different white grape varieties and continuing to expand that uh, with my portfolio. Doesn't the description delicious, isn't that the most unhoity-toity of the sommelier descriptions that probably means the most? I mean, aren't you happy if most people say this wine is delicious? (laughs) When I, um, so I tell this story a lot. The first time uh, I met my now wife uh, was, we went on a blind date in San Francisco and you know, after me trying to pretend I'm like some fancy winemaker from Napa Valley and, you know, kind of mansplain everything I've done in wine in 2009, up to 2009, I, um, she, at the end of the day, she was just like, is, are your wines delicious? And I was like, fuck. That's all I care about. <laughs> that's all we have to care about is like that someone on the other side of, uh, of that bottle. Can in, I tell you that that's glass like, tells you it's delicious. That's the purest lesson. Yeah. You know, I mean that, you know, in the end, that's what you're aiming for. Listen, a lot of things I want to ask you about Massacon, I think, you know, based on design, how we wanted to do this are going to be answered, you know, in our AI, you know, versus Dan chat thing. Um, so let's get into it. Um, let me frame a little of what we're doing. Um, and, you know, as I said to you off air, um, at any point where anything needs uh explanation, description, further conversation. Um, you know, I defer to you. I'm trying to, you know, get you to do all of that. So, you know, feel free to take this anywhere. We could always bring it back to whatever it is, the next question or the topic. So, you know, that's the beauty, you know, of this. It's all conversational. So let's start with the bigger picture, which is artificial intelligence, chat, you know, GPT and all of that. From your perspective, from your perspective, and tailored a little, you know, to wine and this particular podcast um, and all of that, tell me about AI, artificial intelligence, you know, what it is. We may have to explain it to a couple of people. And it's taken the world by storm, you know, in such a short time. You know, why is that? And, you know, you and I talked off air about some comparables. So take take a little time to, you know, discuss that and set up and frame it, like I said. For sure. Um, first, I'll say as a disclaimer, I am not uh, an expert in artificial intelligence. I'm, uh, we know I'm that. Learning this. But, I'm learning right. this as we all are. But I've been what I've been um, very uh, good at doing throughout my career, as you mentioned earlier, I, I juggled uh, two wine brands for over a decade. Um, and the reason um, I was able to kind of do Masakan uh, in the most what effective or efficient manner was looking for efficiencies and effectiveness in my uh, in my workload. And Masakan to this day stands as you know a single um, single person operation, and I um, are, am constantly looking at how I can make my life more efficient, especially on the admin side. And the admin in, in you know in starting a uh, a wine brand is everything from customer service. It's from shipping and handling. It's from it's to you know selling wine via email blast, handling social media, doing all the things that you know 
you know, good brands and good companies do and have teams of people doing. So I've been doing this all by myself for, for quite some time. And I've been working with some outside third-party vendors for, you know, some graphic design work and some editorial work. But when it comes to the nuts and bolts of dealing with my consumers on a day-to-day basis and my distributors on a day-to-day basis um, and my image on a day-to-day basis, I handle all that myself. And so a couple of years ago, um, about 18 months ago, I started, um, paying for a subscription service to an AI, um, generation language generation kind of software tool that allowed me to build out some communication and allowed me to kind of grammar check and to, um, to, to work with some of the editorial, uh, you know, commentary that I was putting into the, into the software and to kind of fact check it, grammar check it, uh, to kind of rewrite it, to help me understand how best to kind of edit it and kind of shorten up or exp- expand it. And I was like, I was fascinated by that because it was really good to have a, you know, this kind of machine who knows, sure. you know, the rules of grammar to, to kind of help you out a little bit. Um, cause I was like the, that's how I started with this whole process. And I was always fascinated. I, I'm going to just tell a quick story here. I've been with my, um, with my fantasy football group with a bunch of college football buddies of mine. I've been, you know, in the, in a fantasy football league with CBS sports line for over 12 years, maybe probably even more than that. Um, and the funny thing about it is every week you get this personalized email about your team. And I'm like, how the hell are they writing tens of thousands personalized emails every Monday morning or Tuesday morning to, to recap your team's success or failures of the prior weekend? I'm like, there's no way they have that many people writing these things individually. So like this, I'm asking myself this question over a decade ago. So there, you know, this, this artificial intelligence and this modeling of, of using words and language to kind of create personalization has existed for a long time. Because they're they're writing tens and tens of thousands of individualized updates to your team on a weekly basis and then comparing them to your league and then giving you predictions. And so this modeling uh, of content has been around. So that has always fascinated me, but it took me a while to figure out what was actually driving it. And then when I figured out what was driving it with this artificial intelligence, and as we started to get into these finding these efficiency tools that I started using a year and a half ago, two years ago, I... Fast forward to less than six months ago, and then the conversation about ChatGPT, which is we're going to dig into in a minute, um, has just taken the world by storm. And it has been uh, quite fascinating to see the, the success of this program. It's quite fascinating to see how um, how so many organizations are kind of jumping on board. You know, Sam, you and I talked about previously, like <laughs> you know, in 2021. Um, if you're into in investment in stocks and finance, uh, the earnings calls that come out in 2021, uh, over 500 earnings calls mentioned cryptocurrency and blockchain technology in 2022. That was the rage, right? Yeah, that was in 2021. Everything was going crazy with crypto and blockchain. And then it evolved into 2022, which became? The metaverse. <laughs> and right. So I, yeah, every company had a metaverse strategy in 2022, according to their uh, their, their quarterly earnings calls. And then now you go to the first quarter of 2023 earnings calls and you can do the research and it's over, I think, 543 earnings calls referenced um, AI technology and, and large language models, these LLMs, <laughs> like ChatGPT. You and I discussed this feels a little different though. Why? This feels different because what we're trying to figure out and what you asked me was how does... 
um, how do we incorporate this into our daily lives, right? And and but it's not how we incorporate it into our daily lives; it's how our the people around us, our consumers, incorporate it. This is so much easier for a consumer to understand than the blockchain technology is and what blockchain is good for, what cryptocurrencies right. are used. This is so much easier for than people to understand, you know, than seeing Mark Zuckerberg without legs floating around his offices <laughs> in Silicon Valley, like. And wearing wearing you know big you know Star Trek or Star Wars like helmets in order to do that stuff. This is simple stuff. This is stuff already built into. If you use Gmail, um, you know we already have you know. And if you use your iPhone, you already have kind of autocomplete on sentences and words and phrases right. and, and recommendations. That's just the that's what that is doing is exactly what these again these LLMs these large language models are doing is that they they are seeing a word. And they're seeing how that word has been used in the past based on scraping the entire internet. And they're, they're predicting what the next word's going to be. Right. So when you put, you know, Dan into chat GPT, the, and I'm not an expert on this, but like, it's going to look at all the references to the proper name, Dan, from biblical, biblical times to the current day. You put in Dan Petrosky, it's a, now it's going to shorten its reference point to right. People named Dan Petrosky. If you put Dan Petrosky winemaker, it's going to shorten it again. Shorter, to, right. And then what happens is like, think about how we use Google, right? Or to, for lack of a better term, a search engine. You put a term or uh, a phrase or a word or a sentence into a search engine and you've gotten a list of, immediately a list of things you can click on to get more information. What, the, what these models are doing is not creating lists anymore for click on. They're actually taking and scraping that content and creating a conversation around it. So I kind of use ChatGPT in a weird way. I use it as very conversational. Whenever I log on, and it's not daily, whenever I log on, I will say, hello, how are you doing today? Almost kind of like, remember War Games? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah you, you know, have a movie uh, from the 80s. Yeah. You have an interaction and rapport with, you know, the yeah. thing. And it's, and it's remembering our interaction and it's, and it's getting to know my tone. And I do that because when I reach out to my customers in a way that's, uh, whether it's, it's a singular customer service incident or it's a, uh, an update to the Masakon brand or I'm trying to sell them a product, I try to do it in a way that makes them feel like it's, it's, they're connected. And so right. I want to connect with, I want the programmatics of this model to, 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 to understand my tone as a, uh, a connected kind of conversation where we feel like we're playing off each other and we're communicating just as we're doing right now. Um, so that's it's how funny because you, you told me that and, you know, in playing around with AI and chat GPT, I wasn't approaching it that way. And then when, you know, we were getting down to doing this project, I sat down, I said, hi, ChatGPT, I'm doing a podcast and I'm doing it with my friend. Why, you know, the whole thing wasn't just queries. It was a conversation and the responses were, oh, that's great. You know, we're here to help you. You know, there's a lot of things to talk about wine. So, you know, hopefully people in listening to this, you know, will pick up a little, uh, pick up little things because you talked about, you know, AI is artificial intelligence. LLM is larger language models, which is really a cool and important part you know, of artificial intelligence. All right. So let's get into it. So, you know, I do a podcast every week. I pretty much structure it. Uh, I, I set up kind of a, a guide of questions for my guests and, you know, we let it take, take it anywhere. So 
I'm going to be conducting the interview asking Dan a bunch of questions, you know, which I would normally do in my interview. But then we're going to also ask ChatGPT to answer that same wine question structured for the platform. Now, Dan, I just want you to get into that for a second. It makes sense when you, if I ask you a question, that if I want to ask ChatGPT, that it shouldn't be much different, but refined in a way. Explain why that works best. For sure. This is a this is a really important learning process when you're dealing with a computer-generated language model. You have it's being prompted by the word choice so that it can create a predictive word to put behind that or uh, after that. So if you ask me a simple question, like how do you make wine? This is a very generic question that they may be able to scour the internet for and give you a Wikipedia-like uh, encyclopedic definition of how to make wine. But if but you're asking that to me, Dan Petrosky, in a podcast. So the, consumer, the, the listener is going to know how does Dan Petrosky make they're going to infer how did Dan Petrovsky make wine for Basica, um, where you have to state that almost literally to the point when you're asking ChatGPT. So that's where you come in and say, hey, I'm very curious how you would make white wine in California when it's super hot and you're trying to create Mediterranean white style. Right. What, how do you, what are the tools or techniques you would use to make wine? Now, this gives the, the, the computer model a lot more to work with. So it can scour and pull in information and then logically try to paste it together in a proper response, as opposed to just a very generic, vague, how do you make wine? And I think that's important because it's you're, 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 the computer is not sitting in the room with us. If the computer is uh, out of context, so you have to create context. So when you, know, when you and I went back and forth on this, and we'll get into the questions, you know, we talk about, I always mentioned, we need to say Napa Valley white wine or California white wine or Sonoma right. County. So the computer can start to reference these regions of winemaking. So we get more accurate information. That's it. So let's get into it. We have a handful of questions. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask Dan the question first. Um, Dan's going to uh, answer it. Um, then we're going to take the same question, similarly reformatted for ChatGPT. I'm going to read off. Some of them are long, so I'm going to pick a little. And then Dan and I are going to go back, and he's going to evaluate, um, you know, he's the authority, <laughs> what ChatGPT said. We'll get into the specificity, uh, the information, accurate or whatever, and then we'll, you know, keep moving on to a bunch of questions. Um, the questions were designed for this kind of podcast. I mean, there's a zillion things I would love to talk to Dan about and ask him, um, but not necessarily for this format. So keep in mind, you know, that these questions are very relevant um, to what Dan is doing and kind of fits the profile of what we're trying to do. All right. So here we go. Question one. Dan, you have shifted to making wines with Italian varietals, mostly white wines in Northern California, where we all know Cabernet and Pinot Noir rule. Do you find it difficult to find Italian grapes in California, especially those white wine grapes? That's a great question. And it's how I had to start finding unique Italian varieties 
by doing research on the internet. <laughs> I had to, you know, every year as a California winery, you have to submit your grape tonnage to the state of California so it can put really? together an annual tonnage report so it can tell you, you know, what grape varieties um, are popular and how much they're paid, how much what their ripening levels were, what their price points were. So this is information you have to uh, submit to the state of California once you're a licensed uh, um, maker of wine. And so I was, I, the first time I ever did that, I was able, I got back the report the next year. I saw all the interesting varieties. I'm like, oh my God, where is Ribola Jala planted? Where is, you know, Vermentino planted? Where is Fiano planted? And so, and there's some things that weren't in that report, like Ribola Jala, because at the time, because it was such a low production um, uh, of grape, it, it's, it just didn't hit the threshold of a certain amount of tonnage. And over the years, as it's been planted more in the last 20 years, it's, uh, it's getting more and more. Um, it gets, it's climbing the ladder of the, the great crush report. So I, that's how I started to find it. And then you start to do more digging and, and, and phone calls to your friends and, you know, folks like Steve Mathiasen and, and Tegan Pasolacqua were great resources for me when I started right. Monster Con in 2009. And then, and then I was just doing uh, internet searches and like coming across weird bottles um, at restaurants and, uh, and from New York to, to Napa Valley and then just starting to ask questions and, um, but the, the real, the honesty of it is, you know, the community here in Napa and Sonoma and California was driven by immigration and immigrants from, you know, the, Italy. the, the gold rush. So it's Italian, yeah. Germans and Spanish and French. And uh, it wasn't until, you know, you know post-World War II, closer to the, 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 the turn of the millennial that the, you know, the focus has been like, okay, we've been doing this for a hundred years here in, in California, what's working and what's not working. And I think we all know in Cabernet Sauvignon works in Napa Valley, Pinot Noir works in Sonoma County, Chardonnay works in Sonoma County and Carneros. We know, we, so we've learned very quickly what, where things uh, right. quickly, quickly in wine terms, decades, you know, 50 years, we've learned that, um, that these are, these are the Kings and Queens of, and the princes and the princesses of wine grapes in these particular regions. But the, the, the heritage and the history is still here. The Italians are still here. The French are still here. The Spanish are still here and they're still making wine and growing grapes. So we have to, you know, you know, it's pretty easy to kind of dig deep and find this stuff. Uh, it's not prevalent, but it's here. Right. So like you said, it's been there. It's been there a while, probably less of it through the years, but you know, you explained how you got to it. All right. So we asked the question to chat GPT, same question, you know, reworded as Dan said, you know, I guess the best word is to make it a little richer so that we can, you know, prompt it to get answers. So the, the question was, if you were a winemaker in Napa Valley or Sonoma County, how difficult would it be to find Italian white grape varieties to make into wine? And here's the answers, Dan. As a winemaker in Napa or Sonoma, finding Italian white grape varieties to make into what white what into wine might present some challenges, but is not entirely impossible. Here are a few factors to consider. Availability. While Napa and Sonoma are renowned for their wine production, the focus is predominantly on the classic French grape varieties, Cab, Chard, Pinot. Italian white grape varieties may be less common, and finding specific varietals can be more challenging. 
climate suitability, which you mentioned. Italian grape varieties are often associated with regions in Italy that have specific climatic conditions. It's important to consider whether the climate in Napa Valley or Sonoma County is conducive to growing and ripening Italian white grapes. Some Italian white grapes like Vermentino, Fiano, prefer warm Mediterranean climates, which may not be ideal for those cooler California regions you know, which we all sort of know. Nursery selection, you know, availability of vine cuttings or plants of Italian white grape varieties in local nurseries, you know, may be limited. Expertise and knowledge. If Italian white grape varieties are less common in the region, winemakers may need to educate themselves about the specific growing requirements, vineyard management practices, and winemaking techniques associated with these grapes, if they give a crap at all, honestly. And then consumer demand and market trends. Winemakers need to consider the demand for Italian white grapes in the local market. If there's a growing interest among consumers for unique and lesser-known varietals, it may provide a favorable market opportunity to explore the Italian white grapes. So before I throw it to you, a lot of what they said matched up to what you said. Um, I'm not sure they answered the question as where to find so, you know, I thought that was interesting. It just told you why or where. So your observations on the ChatGPT answer. <laughs> Sam, oh, my God. Um, you say a lot mashed up to mine, but they said it so much better than I did. <laughs> um, really? That was amazing. That was truly, truly amazing. Yes. And I know the nuance of what you were asking me was – where do I find, how do I get to, you know, find an acre of, you know, to use yeah, but like I, I guess like it's a bigger question. Is, it's not yeah. a, it's a, not a location question necessarily. Exactly. Right. But I really loved their answer and they went into so much more, you know, that, that answer gave me food for thought, right? I didn't, I, I didn't, I brushed over climate change by saying this region is suitable for this grape. This region is suitable for that grape. And we, if you're, if you're knowledgeable about Napa and Sonoma, you know that there's an inherent climactic differences and toar differences in, in climate. And so I, I kind of brushed over those things where they spelled it out a little bit more plainly and to, to the unknown, right? To the unknown consumer, right. and someone who is curious. So I actually really love the answer to that question. If I, had right, to so, rate, if I had to rate the two answers, I would say I'd give, you know, four and a half out of five to ChatGPT and probably 3.8 to, to so Dan. <laughs> let me ask you this, and I will defer to you on the answer. If you say yes, I will. If you say no, I won't. Should I just hang up on you now and just read the chat GPT answers? Just kidding. Just kidding. I'm glad I, to hear that. Because one of the things I said to you is, you know, maybe my expectation is like, you know, go to the northeastern part of Lodi and they've been growing Italian. That's not really necessarily the answer. So I, I like that. I mean, your answer was very similar to your point. You know, there was some good detail there. All right. Let's see what the next one brings us. Right? I, I, will, I will. Yes. And, and I just, for a consumer who's digging into ChatGPT, what I've learned to do. Uh, a lot in my and in, in requiring the system is to actually limit them to how much they say. So, and that's as simple as saying limit, like to like creating a tweet. Limit this to 140 characters. I know I didn't do that, that. but you can say, give me, you know, please limit your answer to 100 words or something to that effect. And that is just you know, as you become more. And then what you could do is also, I'd like to expand on this concept of climate again. 
Um, and so as you're, it's almost a Socratic method. If you think about this as purely, you know, a question and answer and the curiosity of, of, the, of the person typing the questions and what they want to get out of it and to refine it and refine it and refine it, you can take one question and spend an hour digging deeper and deeper and deeper. And I think that's when you would get your, right. your full breadth of answer. But yeah, I, lo- I love that answer. I thought it was great. Yeah. So let's yeah, so look the, forward to the second one. The second question, I think you and I put it together because I think the question that I'm asking you is somewhat general, but important to, you know, how I interview people. I would ask it differently and get into the detail. But I think we structured the question and the chat GPT question because we're very curious where it would go. So, Dan, here's the question to you. You have shifted to making wines with Italian varietals. We've been talking about that for the last hour. Mostly white wines in Northern California. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. That was the first question. Sorry, sorry, sorry. All right, here's the uh, question, which is what I set up. Can you give me a brief description of how you make the wine? Tell me how you get from grape to glass. And that was my reference. It's like you and I would say, you know, how do you farm? Where's your vineyards? What's your cellar thing? We, we kind of narrowed it down to, you know, how you make the wine. So, to, you know, give me uh, your answer on that, however you want. And then, you know, we have the chat GPT question. Yeah, perfect. Like uh, the logical follow-up question to, okay, you're making Italian white grape varieties in, in Northern California, regions of Napa, Sonoma, Lodi, et cetera. How do you achieve your style? How do you achieve your, your goals? What's your winemaking philosophy? So my winemaking philosophy to answer your question and, and the style of which I'm trying to achieve is kind of this, you know, what I've been calling recently these island whites, right? So this Mediterranean white grape variety style. Style wines that when you're on vacation in the Mediterranean, you're drinking these crisp, cold, floral, um, salty, um, citrusy, you know, kind of almondy kind of white wines, and they pair well with everything. They pair well with your frito misto, they pair well with your potato chips and your your Marcona almonds, they pair well with your olives. Um, and then you can you know, can slide right into, you know, it could it could be you know, the next day you're going to drink a Campari and soda or et cetera, et cetera. So right. my goal is to kind of try to capture that essence. Um, and how do you do that in the, in, in the diverse climates of Napa, Sonoma, Lodi, et cetera. And you have to kind of like focus on what your end product is. So you have to see the, you know, the destination before, you know, you can't just allow, um, I always used to joke that mother nature, Masakan lived outside of uh, the slings and arrows of mother nature because I, was going after a stylistic goal, which is fresh and bright and, and on the earlier side of ripening. I don't want the tropical side of Sauvignon Blanc for argument's right. sake. I want more of the kind of herbaceous and kind of stone fruit side of Sauvignon Blanc. And there's simple things in the winemaking process that you know you can do to, to achieve that. And that's you know harvesting on the slightly on the earlier side. It's um, hard, um, fermenting in you know kind of non-oxidative stainless steel barrels or tanks and um and that is uh, the approach that i've taken since day one and shortening the cycle of your timing so getting it down from six months to from grape to glass it's easy when you're when you're 20 degrees sugar in a, in a grape to ferment that quickly as opposed to if you're at 24 25 or 26 degrees sugar in a grape it takes a little longer you might need a little more nutrition in the grape variety so you have to change your winemaking style and change your winemaking inputs so for me it's always been about you know fresh and clean and fast um, into the fermenter, out of the fermenter, into you know through the aging process and into bottles, so that we can kind of enjoy these wines in the spring and the summer 
when the weather is becoming and acting more Mediterranean, you know, warmer days, right. cooler nights, breezy. Believe me, plenty of people drink your wines in the winter. Um, <laughs> here's a neophyte question. Um, is it generally easier to make white wine than red wine? I mean, you alluded to some of that, but is the answer yes or not necessarily? You know, my, uh, my, one of my first and dear friends of, uh, in wine country, Stefan Vivier, he, he jokingly on the back of his Vivier wine label says, you know, that he's a lazy winemaker. And he refer- references that to, you know, mostly to when his time at HTV, Hyde de Valaine, making Chardonnay because Chardonnay right. is, you know, the, 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 you know, for lack of a better uh, term, you know, wine is made in the vineyard. So if you're making the proper vineyard choices and the proper decisions in the vineyard, the heart, the proper harvest date decision, all you do is come in and you crush those grapes, you put them in a press, you squeeze out the juice, put them in the the, the, the vessel of choice, whether it be stainless steel or oak, and allow the fermentation to happen. So your decisions about what that wine style is and what it's going to be has been predetermined before you even start the, the, the vintage uh. in the cellar. And therefore, it's lazy because then there's no inputs, right? So if you did all the work up front, the winemaking side of it is lazy. And that's, I think, uh, something about white wines that are different. You know, red wines are, you're you're like a chef tasting the sauce, you know, to see if it's hit the right kind of level right. of balance of acidity and richness and and so forth. So like with red wine, you're, you're, you're kind of extracting what your hope to extract what your vision is for the wine and it, you have to be on top of that on a regular basis and you can miss it uh in a fermenter sure uh, it, it, you can miss that window you can be surprised based on mother nature what mother nature handed you that year so they get to be a little bit more intent attentive and on top of it and therefore it becomes a little riskier and therefore it becomes more challenging to make red great red wine and um i think that's uh yeah from making white wine i find it to be um, more of a vision for what you're trying to achieve and if all things considered have done well in the vineyards and the decisions for harvest are good then you are um then you're right. pretty much uh, oh, as not, always, as cha- not as challenged as a red wine maker. right as always in the vineyard um all right so here's the chat gpt question to that now that you've found italian white grapes in napa valley in sonoma county tell me how you would make the wine and we prompted it by saying, feel free to discuss fermentation process, your use of stainless steel or oak barrels, and how this will support your style of winemaking. So, ready for the answer? If I were making wine from Italian white grapes in Napa Valley or Sonoma Coast, here's how I might approach the winemaking process. Taking into account the fermentation process, the use of stainless steel oak barrels, and how these choices would support my style. So they kind of answer it starting off with a reiteration of the question. So the first thing they say is grape selection and harvest. I would ensure that the Italian white grapes I've sourced are of high quality and ideally harvested at their optimal ripeness which you may comment on that, which may vary depending on the specific grape variety. Harvesting grapes in the early morning when temperatures are cooler can help preserve their freshness and acidity. Crushing and pressing after sorting and destemming, I would gently crush the grapes uh, to release the juice. For some Italian white grapes, such as Vermentino or Fiano, a short period of skin contact might enhance the aromatic and flavor profile. Following that, I would proceed with pressing the grapes to extract the juice for fermentation. Fermentation. For certain Italian white grape varieties, such as aromatic ones like Muscat or delicate ones like Arnai, I would consider fermenting in stainless steel tanks at cool temperatures to preserve their fresh, vibrant aromatics. Stainless steel tanks are 
and non-reactive, allowing the pure expression of the fruit without imparting any additional flavors. Aging, the choice between stainless steel and oak barrels for aging would depend on the desired style and complexity of the wine. If I aim for crisp, fruit-forward style, that emphasizes the varietal characters, I might continue aging in stainless steel tanks. This helps maintain the wine's freshness, freshness and preserves the primary fruit flavors. Oak aging, however, if I intended to add depth, structure, and subtle oak influences to the wine, I might consider using oak barrels. Um, Lees contact and stirring to enhance the texture and complexity of the wine. I might choose to age some Italian white wines on the lees, which in parentheses they say is yeast sediment. After fermentation, this process adds richness and mouthfeel to the wine. Occasionally stirring the lees, known as lees stirring or batonage, can contribute additional complexity and flavor um, integration. And then finally, they mentioned blending. Depending on the varietal characteristics and the desired final profile, I might consider blending different batches of Italian white wines together. This can help achieve a harmonious balance of flavors and create a more complete and well-rounded wine. Your reaction? I, once again, I think they've answered it in a very encyclopedic format. I think they've probably used a lot of the education material that's uh, that, that scatters the web, whether it be from the, you know, from the Master of Wines websites or the Guild of Sommeliers, uh, Master Sommelier website, or some sort of textbook um, answering these questions. And I think they put it in there very, um, uh, very chronologically, very matter-of-factly, very succinctly about all the different procedures and processes that you could consider. Not all of them, but the you know the big the big hit numbers, the big top uh, top right. line uh, agenda items. And um, I think they did a great job. And and you know, so it's not when I look at it, it's not because um, I'm not sure. That's why it's I'm not emotional. Sure. It's not no, emotional. No, 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 no. There's and, no emotion there at all. And, you know, there's some specifics, you know, stirring the leaves, the leaves, blah, 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 blending. Um, but um, it's a it fair feels answer. Like, honestly, it, it's a fair answer, right? I mean, so, it, no, it would encompass everything you would say anyway. No, and Sam, it, it feels like it is an it's education material for right. – for someone who is trying to understand a little bit more about why certain things in the winemaking I, process or what are certain techniques in the winemaking process that will help I you guess, achieve and, a gold. I guess, you know, it's the soulful part of it is, you know, if I'm talking to Dan, you know, Dan's going to get into it in specific and maybe even emotional. This is going to be, I wouldn't necessarily use the word technical, but it'll take you through the process. Let's see how that continues on. All right. So the third question we kind of talked a little about, you know, in our early discussions. The question is, what are some of the challenges of a small winery in California? What are some of the challenges a small winery in California will encounter? And how do you grow that winery? You know, you were talking about, you know, you make a limited amount of cases you'd like to grow. You talked about what some of the problems are. So what are some of the challenges and how you, how do you grow it? This is, you know, and this becomes slightly emotional and, and maybe not as pragmatic and, and kind of uh, business school case study-esque uh, because, you know, I'm looking at this small brand um, using Masakan as an example, and I think about how it bums me out that there aren't more, there isn't more availability of some of these great varieties that I uh, wow. want to work with. And then I, then I say, okay, there would be availability if I paid for it, but then it becomes, that's when the economics comes into 
play. You know, it's very difficult for my small white wine brand that has been focused on Napa Valley and being wines made into Napa Valley to try to my best to keep the pricing down because I'm introducing wines that are unique and or rare in the state of California, even though that they are origins for hundreds of years and maybe thousands of years in, um, in, in Italy. And I look at that and I say, okay, well, there is really no reason for Tokai Friolano to be planted in, in the heart of Oakville when that's, you know, Cabernet country. But if it is planted in the heart of Oakville, how much am I going to pay for it per ton? And then how can I keep my bottle price oh, really? $30? So, you know, just, you know, just a quick summary of, uh, of my fruit pricing. It's, you know, a ton of grapes is the equivalent of anywhere between 55 to 60 cases of wine. Uh, when you, when you talk about white wine and in California, Napa Valley, I'll be paying on average four thousand dollars a ton for uh, for white wine grapes. That is the you know that is basically the almost the average price of Merlot in Napa in in yeah, no uh, in Napa Valley. Sonoma County prices get a little bit cheaper, about thirty two hundred dollars a ton on average for me. And then as I go a little farther afield, um, I into places like Lodi and start to go into you know the eastern and southern parts of uh, of the North Bay. I'm looking at anywhere between a thousand and two thousand dollars a ton so the challenges for me are like how long will Masakan remain a napa valley sonoma county uh inspired wine brand um because i it's limited here it's the the the, the landscape is limited the it's a finite number of vineyards uh it's very expensive to to invest and buy into this community and therefore your your return on that investment has to be founded with you know, these great varieties like Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, and, and so forth. So I have to, emotionally, it, that breaks my heart because I've lived here for 15, 16 years. But is it stopping me from, you know, from growing? No. I'm, I, I said it earlier, I, I left my day job in order to kind of, to be able to, to travel around and, and, and meet new people, see new places, and, and buy some new grapes. So that's always just but, been my challenge. It's, but it's is, part of your mission, is part of your mission statement to only make wines from uh, Napa and Sonoma, or you realize, you know, not anymore. Uh, yeah, right. Not I, anymore. I mean, Ten years ago, twelve years ago, when I started, uh, you wanted uh, to stay almost, in that box. I, w- I had a day job, and I wanted to do a side hustle, and I wanted to have right. white wines to drink in the community, and because uh, we have very Mediterranean climate here in Napa Valley, and it, I was never growing. I didn't want to grow. I didn't want to grow very big. Um, I always said to keep the supply uh, beneath the demand with regard to quantity of wine I've made, and I've successfully done that for the last 13 years. Now I kind of now I'm I've changed my tune a little bit. I want to I want to see if there's an opportunity to take this small, uh, you know, moderately successful brand and make it into a large, very successful brand. And uh, so I, I can't I can't rely on Napa and Sonoma. Napa and Sonoma have Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Cabernet. And they can, and they should succeed and continue to do that. Um, they shouldn't replant the entire Napa Valley to Tokai Pilano and to no. to Falangina. No. All right, let's um, let's go to ChatGPT. So we asked what some of the challenges of a small wine in California will counter. All right, here's the ChatGPT question: What are some of the challenges a small winery in California will encounter? And does a small winery in California grow its wine production? Um, and sale of these wines. So 
The answer is a small winery in California may encounter several challenges, but with strategic planning and effective growth strategies, it could overcome these obstacles and thrive. Here are some of the common challenges and approaches to growing a small winery. It's funny. It's sort of the business answer, strategic planning and effective growth strategies. Talk to a winemaker about that. Um, all right, so here are the answers. There's about six or seven answers. Limited resources. Small wineries often face constraints in terms of financial resources, vineyard land equipment, and personnel. Um, that's for sure. To address the challenge, wineries can focus on prioritizing their investments, seeking cost-effective solutions, leveraging partnerships and, or collaborations with other industry professionals. Distribution and market. Access. That's number two. Gaining distribution and market access can be difficult for small wineries due to competition and limited brand recognition. Three, brand building and marketing. Building a strong brand and effectively marketing the wine is crucial for small wineries. Developing a unique brand identity, storytelling, and highlighting the winery's unique selling points can differentiate it from larger competitors. Utilizing social media, digital marketing, wine events, and participating in local wine associations can help raise awareness and attract customers. Quality and consistent, number four, consistency. Maintaining consistent quality is paramount for any winery, regardless of size. Small wineries can focus on their strengths, such as producing limited production, premium wines that showcase their distinctive terroir and winemaking style. Five, regulatory compliance. Compliance with local, state, and federal regulations is essential for wineries. Staying up to date with licensing, labeling, and reporting requirements, as well as environmental and sustainability practices is crucial. Six, saleable production. As a winery grows, scaling up production while maintaining quality can be challenging. It requires careful planning, investment in infrastructure and equipment, and ensuring that the vineyard sourcing and grape supply can meet increased demand. Strategic partnerships with vineyard owners, long-term grape contracts, or investing in vineyard land can help secure a reliable supply. Uh, visitor experience, finally, for wineries with a tasting or a hospitality component, creating an exceptional visitor experience is essential. Pretty good, right? <laughs> Sam, I, th I think you nailed it uh, when you started out the conversation. You mentioned that this is kind of like the business school case study or, or business plan for wine for creating. Well, that wine seemed brand. like the tone off this, yeah. you know, the back. And it's amazing. It's amazing. You know, I mean, you know, those, those six points, seven points that you, uh, you kind of reiterated or, or, or spoke to based on the answer, those are exactly the six or seven things you're going to have to answer in a business plan if you want to be successful. And I think that is, uh, you talked um, about four or five of them in the last 40 yeah. minutes. I you know, do, they, they I unsolicited, <laughs> they were things that you mentioned that you're doing or important or difficult. And I think, and I think if you're, if you're a young kid coming out of uh, enology school or a bit of cultural school, or you're a young kid and <laughs> sorry if I, if that's offending anyone um, who is working in a winery in a cellar and want to start their own brand. I mean, take those six points, answer those questions and you, you will, you will be able to kind of start to refine what you're trying to do. You know, the way I started my plan was simple. It's like, if, if I want to drink this wine, there might be enough other people out there who want to drink it too. And then I, then I started with that as a philosophy and then kept going from there. But that was a great answer. I'm really, I, I really liked what they said. I do too, because it mirrored a lot 
what you were talking about. And what you're talking about is from someone who knows what they're talking about. So the matchup is nice. All right, listen, we have two more questions left. I'd like to try to get to the wine list. I think we have time, but just, you know, keep in mind, you know, we don't have to overdwell on some of these questions, the last couple, all right? So our fourth question, here's our question to Dan. And this is a fun one in a way. And I think you drove this question towards me. In order to sell the wine, differentiate it, and make it more appealing to consumers, how do you write a tasting note for each wine? That's to you. Yeah, and this this goes back to our conversation about deliciousness. Um, You know, each of us come from a different uh, walk of life. Uh, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I wasn't exposed to a lot of the the aromas and flavors that I would um, read in my peers or critics tasting notes. Um, Masakan is really built on one thing and one thing only my year living in, in the South of Italy and the aromas and flavors and nostalgia and romance I have for those aromas and flavors, not only in, in, in the air, but in the food and the drink uh, of my, my experience. So I, th- when I think of Masakan, I think of the things that, it should be or could be or tries to be and it really everything kind of falls in line so my tasting notes will always fall in line with the the citrus and the floral and this you know the salinity of uh, being living on an island in the mediterranean and those are the things that i'm looking for so when i'm thinking about how to differentiate that from a wine to a wine to a wine you start to talk about things like texture how does that you know how does lemon come across on your palate texturally is it lemon zest is it lemon oil so that you know you start to you you, you start to drink the wine to taste the wines for things that are going to differentiate them um, from one wine to the next and obviously grape variety is a big uh, indicator of what's going um what the core characteristics of the wine are going to be but that's really it i mean you know yeah so too i think i tied in my story you know my story there was you know as a winemaker I differentiate myself because I'm making wines that are reminiscent to a time and place in my life. Right. And you're transcending people there through words. Yeah. yeah, And you're picking your words very carefully, you know? So, all right, let's see uh, what the old chat boy has to say. All right. So here's the question we gave him first. Remember we said, you know, we had to embellish a little to make it work. So, and Dan again, helped drive this question. So we're asking ChatGPT, I want to write a wonderful tasting note for our Mediterranean-style white wines made in California. Can you help write this tasting note in the style of Massacan wines and make sure they smell and taste like products one would encounter when visiting the Mediterranean? We want this wine to be a trigger to transport our drinker back to a Mediterranean vacation. So that's the original question but you know really keyed up so here's the answer very enthusiastic chat gpt certainly with an exclamation point here's a tasting note inspired by massacre wines with a focus on evoking the scents and flavors reminiscent of a mediterranean vacation all right here goes the tasting note Massacan-inspired Mediterranean white wine. Indulge in a sensory journey as you uncork this captivating Mediterranean-style white wine from California. Inspired by the renowned Massacan wines, each sip is an invitation to relive the sun-kissed landscapes, aromatic herbs, and vibrant flavors of the Mediterranean. 
They talk about appearance. Glistening like the golden rays of the Mediterranean sun, this wine reveals a pale straw hue, hinting at its refreshing and lively character. Now we go to the nose. The first inhalation transports you to coastal gardens where the warm sea breeze carries enchanting aromas. Delicate notes of freshly picked lemon blossoms mingle with the uplifting scents of wild Mediterranean herbs like rosemary and thyme. A touch of tangy grapefruit zest adds a lively citrusy twist, while a whisper of sea salt awakens memories of seaside strolls. On the mid-palate, the wine unfolds like a tapestry of Mediterranean flavors. Herbaceous notes of fresh basil and lemon thyme intertwine, reminiscent of bustling farmers' markets brimming with fragrant herbs and local produce. A hint of crushed almond adds a gentle richness, evoking the flavors of traditional Mediterranean desserts. The finish, the wine lingers on the palate with a refreshing saline finish, transporting you to a hid to hidden coves where azure waters meet sun-drenched limestone cliffs, a gentle minerality reminiscent of ancient coastal soils, leaving a lasting impression. If you pair, the Mediterranean white style is perfect, the perfect companion for culinary explanations. Serve it chilled alongside Mediterranean-inspired seafood platters, briny oysters, grilled prawns drizzled, drizzled with lemon-infused olive oil, sea bass. It complements fresh salad with ripe tomatoes and even creamy feta cheese. So, you know, I don't know if that was like a little florally along, but everything you and I were talking about down to almonds was mentioned in there. Sam, that is um, unbelievable. I had I was on mute because I was laughing so hard. Um, <laughs> I fucking hated it. I hated every every word of it, um, and because it's not my style. That's not no, how I, know. I talk. <laughs> but, but, and, but, but it was elements, really really good. The elements were all there. Oh my god, every, that feels like I mean I everything you described is in that answer. That, with, I mean. I could see a, a, mark, a young marketing manager, a PR agency, someone who's going to write the flowery content of a website. I mean, I could see that written on a, a dozen different websites throughout the wine industry right now. And but, it, but Dan, it's fair to, pay, to say – You didn't have to pay anyone to do it. <laughs> but it's fair to say you can, you can go three ways. If I'm working with you and I'm doing that, I could just do that and rip it off, which would be a bad move. I could let you write it, which, you know, with today's technology, why not consult? And I could confer with them and then take that and yours and, you know, integrate the best of everything, you know, which would uh, seem to yeah. work. But I, I, I mean, I, I, I loved it, but at the same time, I hated yeah. it. So, all right, uh, let's so get to the next one. <laughs> here's our last question, and Dan and I had more questions, but we cut it down to five because we're definitely running into time uh, considerations. All right, here's the question to you, Dan. Dan, as we think about climate change, and this is a topic, you know, I'm going off question for a second. This is a topic you and I wanted to approach and see how, you know, uh, AI would handle it. Um, so as we think about climate change, will Italian white wine grapes do better in Napa and Sonoma or California in general? I believe that white wine grapes uh, in general will do better over the uh, with regards to the grape being able to kind of have its core characteristics remain in place. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you're making white wines, you're, you're throwing out the skins, you're just fermenting 
majority of the time, 99% of the time, you're just fermenting the juice that's pressed off from the grape. Right. Um, yes, there will be a sugar and acid imbalance based on certain kind of climactic conditions if it gets too warm for certain varieties. So you will still have to be mindful of where those grape varieties are planted. Um, but with red wine grapes, you are you are developing the flavors and the textures and the skins of those grapes. So at the same time, you're reducing uh, acids and increasing sugars inside the grape and the, the pulp and the juice. So it's a very, it's very, climate change will have a much greater impact on where and how red grapes are grown, um, not only in Napa Sonoma in California, but throughout the world, whereas white, can, white wine grapes can have more transportational value because they are throwing out the one thing that the red wine grape relies on, which is the skin. Well, what does that but mean, transportational think, value? I think what I mean by that is that you can, you know, a white wine grape, like Sauvignon Blanc, could be right. made in, in Loire Valley. It could be made in Friuli. It could be made oh, in okay. England. It could be made in South Africa. It That's what I thought. Sure. Yeah, so it has, a, it can transport itself a little easier. Um, and that's why we don't see every red wine grape in every region of the wine growing world, because that's why we don't see Nebbiolo just like planted all over California, because it doesn't necessarily, cannot necessarily transport well. Um, right. So that's it. That's just the, the short of it, in my opinion. I think white wine grapes will have a, a, a little bit longer runway um, in regions where their, their, their cousins, a red wine grape might have a little harder time right. adapting in the next, you know, 20, 30 years. All right. Um, you know, we know that. And that's a very specific answer to, you know, what you're doing. I mean, you're a white wine, you know, guy in California. All right. So here's the chat GPT question to that. Um, will climate change impact winemakers in California? Will it have a bigger impact on white wine grapes or red wine grapes? All right. So chat GPT answer climate change is indeed expected to have an impact on winemakers in California and the effects can vary for different grape varieties including white and red wine grapes here's an overview of how climate change might impact California winemakers and the potential implications for white and red grapes number one rising temperatures climate change is leading to rising temperatures which can have significant consequences for grape growing Warmer temperatures can accelerate grape ripening, potentially affecting the balance of sugar, acidity, and phenolic compounds in the grapes. This can impact the flavor profile and overall quality of both white and red. Shifts in growing season, number two. Climate change can alter the timing and length of growing seasons. Early bud break and longer ripening periods may become more common, affecting the development of grape flavors and physiological ripeness. These changes can impact both white and red grapes, but red grapes, which typically require longer hang time for optimal ripening, may be more susceptible to challenges associated with longer and hotter growing seasons. Three, water availability and drought. California has been facing water scarcity issues and climate change can exacerbate this challenge. Drought conditions can impact vine health, yield, and grape quality. Water stress can have a more immediate impact on white wine grapes as they generally require higher water availability for maintaining acidity and aromatic development. Red wine grapes, particularly those with thicker skins, may be more resilient to drought conditions due to their ability to withstand water stress to some extent. Um, 
pests and disease. Climate change can influence the prevalence and distribution of pests and disease. Warmer temperatures and challenging rainfall patterns may create more favorable conditions um, for certain pests and diseases, such as grapevine, leaf roll virus, and fungal um, infections. Both varietals will be affected. Uh, lastly, adaptation and mitigation strategies. Winemakers in California are actively responding to the challenges posed by climate change. They are exploring strategies such as adjusting trellising systems, altering irrigation practices, planting vineyards in cooler microclimates, and selecting grape varieties that are more resilient to warmer temperatures. These adaptations aim to ensure the continued production of high-quality wines while mitigating um, uh, the impacts of climate change. So it says understanding the characteristics and requirements of both white and red wine grape varieties will help winemakers make informed decisions to ensure the continued success of their vineyards and the production of exceptional wines. Um, Dan, to me, that sounded like mm. thorough textbook type of answer. What's your thoughts? 100%. I mean, we've, we've obviously got a theme here throughout these questions and answers. And I do think anyone studying for, um, you know, a theory exam, whether it be for sommelier or master of wine, I think these are answers that you're probably expected to, uh, to write up just like the, the way ChatGPT is, uh, is outputting them. Um, I like them. Um, I think they I think this is very educational, and I hope that uh, people are listening in on this uh, podcast are, are finding that this is to be quite fascinating. Uh, I think the fun of a podcast, you know, I can make the differentiation is like, I think you and I are satisfied and impressed with the answers. I think that's why talking to the winemaker on a podcast, the connection, you know, the nuances, you know, the experiential stuff. That's what's really, you know, interesting and fun. You know, this is the infancy. Dan, I hope you and I, for some reason, could, you know, come back to this in five years and see how it's evolved, you know, in that sense. That would be interesting. So give me some general observations, you know, of all the questions. Um, well, I want to I want to touch on the point you said in five years, Sam, because this is something that I've been thinking about for a while. It's I it's kind of I've delved into things like the metaverse, and you know, the metaverse is open seven days a week, for, you know, twenty four hours a day. But I'm not actually awake seven days a week through twenty four hours a day. So it, it, I think about using this this large language model, and if it gets to know Dan Petrosky as a winemaker, gets to know my voice and my tone, gets to take all this audio from you know this podcast and these questions. And what if like my avatar was created and my avatar was available 24 um, hours a day, seven days a week with my answers to cool. some of these questions. And that way you, anywhere in the world, you can access, boom, pull up a glass of Masakan, go to bar Masakan in the metaverse, and then, and then, uh, then meet the winemaker. And he could tell you, he being me could tell you, um, you know, what I truly feel about it, as opposed to kind of just inputting, you know, the the kind of the API app of ChatGPT because Dan Petrosky, anyone who knows me knows I'm not going to answer the questions like that. And what's proof positive is how we you know gone through this um, this podcast. So I think that's fascinating. And um, and you and you said it yourself. It's the tone, the conversational tone, um, and how and the emotion and or the kind of winemaker experience. Those are the things that you you just mentioned. Yeah that I think that we can, you can find the mass differentiation between 
um, us versus them, them being these large language models. But I am completely and utterly fascinated by them. I think they're amazing tools for, for as a resource um, to help support, you know, the things you do in life uh, as a business. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to the next 5, 10, 15 years. I, I totally agree with you. And um, this was, you know, uh, more than fun. It was educational and, um, you know, revealing. Forever Cheese, a leading importer of cheese and specialty food, has sourced exceptional products from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia for 25 years. Offering a wide selection of artisan cheese, charcuterie, nuts, crackers, preserves, and more, their products are sold in stores nationwide. Forever Cheese seeks out the best of the Mediterranean and focuses on sharing stories from their family of producers. Each product has a unique story, and their goal is to celebrate each one. From drunken goat to genuine Fulvi Pecorino Romano, Mostarda to Mitica Marcona almonds, and Duya to Hamon Iberico, Forever Cheese is proud to offer products they love from people they believe in. Their passion, quality, and range are unmatched. Learn more at forevercheese.com and look for their products in a grocery store, restaurant, or specialty food shop near you. If anyone listens to the Grape Nation on a regular basis, you know we do a thing called the wine list. And I don't want Dan leaving without answering our wine list because more importantly, I'm curious about um, his potential recommendations. One of the things that I decided to continue on was to use ChatGPT and not ask all the wine list questions, you know, what's Dan's favorite wine and food pairing, but a couple of them. So I, I did what's Dan Petrosky's favorite wine and food pairing. And to my surprise, here's the answer I got. Um, it says, this is ChatGPT answering. As of my knowledge cutoff in September 2021, I don't have specific information regarding winemaker Dan Petrosky's favorite wine and food pairing. Winemaker's preferences can evolve over time and individual tastes can vary. To obtain the most accurate and up-to-date information on Dan Petrosky's favorite wine and food pairing, I recommend reaching out to him directly or referring to interviews, articles, or social media posts where he may have shared his personal preferences. So interesting answer. It said it wouldn't give you an answer. It's almost alluding that there is an answer out there. Try these places to find them. So I give them credit for not trying to construct a, you know, a goofy, you know, out, you know, like Dan makes Italian wine. So he probably likes Italian food, you know, with a, they didn't do anything like that. So kudos to them. What do you think on that response? I love that. And I think that that is actually something you see a lot of in your, in your queries to ChatGPT. It's because we have to learn how to speak to a computer generated system, uh, what they call prompts. Um, and we have to ask them certain questions that are going to refer to maybe some of these articles that right. they're, they're, they're kind of quote unquote hyperlinking you to. But um, I think that's accurate. Um, you know, there, there, I've run into that answer under different circumstances as well in the past as I've kind of done some research and I've asked for some opinions on, on the state of the wine industry or how, um, or volume metrics in the wine industry. And they tend to like not want to a get in trouble, b misrepresent themselves right. with a person. 
And then so the knowledge base. Knowledge cutoff was, was cut off. It was cut off in September 2021. So from then on, you know. Yeah, and then and and then the upper updated models and versions. And if you if you purchase the Japanese. GPT Pro, they're um, more uh, relevant, more timely information, but it also doesn't want to get itself in trouble. Um, right. I think that's what um, I, I like that's, that. That's like something that, that, that we're, all, yeah. we're all talking about that. I mean, there's, you know, Sam Altman who started OpenAI, who's the kind of the, the chief he, of the CEO he there. Just he just testified in Congress. Yeah. <clears throat> he was so, pretty, uh, he was pretty uh, open and real. All right, Dan. Yep. We don't have a lot of time. You don't have a lot of time. So because you don't have a lot of time, I want to utilize the time we have left. We have less than 10 minutes because you got to blow Perfect. out of here. Five wineless questions. Don't dwell on them. Don't elongate on them. I have a feeling I tell this to everyone. And by the second question, everyone's like reading prose. So just keep it. All right. So first question is, what's Dan Petrosky drinking now? What's in his fridge? What are you curious about? What are you tasting? Do the seasons change what you're drinking? Are you doing any tasting for work? You know, what are you drinking now? 100%. I am drinking a lot of Masakan right now and a lot of Italian white wines. And the reason for that is uh, the, the spring release is just uh, uh, just behind us. And um, I don't have a tasting facility that I can host people in California and Napa Valley. So I tend to do tastings at uh, my local favorite Italian restaurant, Don Giovanni, here in Napa. I and, love that um, place. I will, um, in order to do that, what I'll do is we'll buy a bottle of wine or two off the list, usually a, a Marisa Cuomo, you know, kind of uh, Amalfi uh, white wine and uh, and compare them and pair them with some Masakan as well as, uh, this might answer your next question with food pairings. Um, All right, so let's but, go right to it. What's Dan's favorite wine and food pairing? So answer that and whatever unanswered stuff you want to throw in from the first question, go. Yeah, I love the, I love I love grazing at the aperitivo hour. So I love, you know, fried olives at Don Giovanni and the Frito Misto um, and drinking some white wines or Campari soda. And, uh, you know, we just, I'm writing a cookbook at the moment and uh, with Jordan McKay and Sarah Hellman. And, and we just did a whole thing on the aperitivo hour and, and what you should be eating and drinking and, you know, crispy, delicious, crunchy white wines do really well with bar snacks. All right. I think that's a great answer. And I do that all the time. I have a question. I drink Campari and soda. I drink some Aperol spritzes. Is there anything to switch out on Campari and soda, like a bitter that's just as fun as Campari, or that's what Campari's for? Do you ever do bitters and soda, or you just say oh, Campari? No, for sure. I mean, I like Campari and soda because I think it's uh, it has just enough great sweetness. I think yeah. it's flavors that I appreciate. But no, the bitter culture is amazing, and we've there's so many Amaro, so many Amari, um, so many vermouth uh, brands that you could put over. You the make a vermouth soda water. Let's tell yeah. everyone. Um, wait, so there's so many, Sam. There's like, but do you, you do never you, go wrong? <laughs> do you drink the Amaros or some of the bitter straight up, or you'll do some of them uh, in sparkling water? I'll do them in sparkling, a lot of them in sparkling water okay. um, or, or, over, or over rocks. You know. All right. Good answer. All right. Um, third question. The question is your favorite wine restaurant and or bar. And you could answer that in your neighborhood. You can answer that in your travels. You can answer that both. I just want to make it easy for you. Whatever you answer is not your most favorite place or one or two or three. It's just things that have come to mind. And it's only in the reference of 
who's got great wine, who's got a great vibe, who has great knowledge. When you walk in, you know, you know, the list is going to be cool. You know, the people there are nice, whatever. Who, who does that well? I, I'm, I'm not saying this because I'm a New York City kid, but the Union Square Hospitality Group. So Danny Meyer and his teams okay. over the years have, uh, have just hit the ball out of the park. They nailed everything that you said with great wine lists, great hospitality, great food. Um, you know, just thinking about the lists like Marta, where, you know, it was pizza and champagne. and, and They upped the champagne Mariola. game. Everybody followed <laughs> yeah. suit, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. And then, but starting with things like Union Square Cafe and, and Gramercy Tavern, where you're going to get a more elevated experience, you can lead into, you know, a little deeper into into America and to France. But then obviously, you know, good old days of Mialino when they were at the Gramercy Tavern. I can't wait to see Mialino, uh, yeah. the, the new version of it. I haven't been there yet, but got to see Chisiamo in action uh, on a previous visit to uh, to New York she City. Does a, so, she does a good job in a big place, right? Killing it. I mean, Chisiamo? Yeah, yeah, I think I think Hillary. All right, so like, that's a good answer. I like that answer. Um, all right, fourth question. And don't forget, you've done this once or twice. This may be your second or third time on the show. Um, so fourth question is favorite all-time wine. When I initially structured the question, I was curious about, hey, Dan, what's the most rare, expensive wine you ever drank? Don't give a crap about that anymore. The question in favorite all-time wine is, Dan, What's that one or two wines that influenced you the most? That was a gateway. That was so memorable, you know, that changed the way you think. Is In your mind, is there a wine or two at a time when you had it that was important? Uh, still to this day, that wine, the most haunting wine that I can smell or taste that uh, encourages me and incites me to be a better winemaker is Giuseppe Mascarello's Mom Privato. I've never smelt or tasted a wine that is given me chills as, as often as that wine has done. And um, and I'm glad that uh, there are some people in this world who think it's uh, not as good as it used to be because that's it's kept the price yeah. <laughs> the price down a little bit, which, uh, which you know, in today's yeah. day and age. Which is, everything's going the opposite way. All right. And I know that's our next question, Sam. It's about price. I know, but wait. I just, on the all-time wine, um, so... The Mascarella Mon Privato in general, is there like a vintage or two that just, you know, if, if anyone has an 06 in their cellar, I would drink it with okay. them any day of the week. I'd is fly it, anywhere and I'd go drink it. Is it hard or impossible to find, Dan? No, not as hard or impossible okay. to find. It's, it's just, just a, a favorite vintage of yours. Yeah. All right, last question. Last question. Um, I want you to recommend to me and you're a value quality guy. I want you to recommend the best wine around 15, 20, 22 bucks. I want you to recommend a red. I want you to recommend a white. You could always, as I say, recommend a category like Muscadet, Vermentino, you know, can be good values. I always say my kids are in their late 20s, early 30s. They're still not at the point um, where, you know, they could bring a crappy supermarket wine, but they're not spending 40 on a wine either. So how do you, ooh, ah, 19, 20, 22 bucks. So give me your white and red recommendations. The wines I used to recommend a lot, which I think have uh, eclipsed that price point category with a little. Well, let's hear wines. them and then we'll figure it yeah. out. 
I think La Crema has done an amazing job with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. They're a very yep. large production facility within the Kendall Jackson family, but they treat their production as uh, as small batch winemaking. Yep. But um, I think they've eclipsed that category. But I'm gonna I'm gonna say something that probably not a lot of people have said, and I'm not saying this selfishly. Um, California Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, I do think that Sauvignon Blanc is delicious, and I think the California marketplace for making those wines have a variance amount of styles, but you can get really incredible. I'm just going to uh, call out some people here in Napa Valley, whether it be you know, Long Meadow Ranch or Honig, or you know, Duck Horn's a little more expensive these days, but there's a, there's a, a grouping of uh, California Sauvignon Blancs in that $20 price point range that are just killing it on quality and, and deliciousness. And, um, and I'm, so I I'm love not that sure. Yeah, I'm I not sure you can get to the, the greatness of Sauvignon Blanc at that price point in, no, uh, no, in no, no. Valley I, these I had, days, but there's still I also had, a very good number of producers in the 20 I had range. Raj Parr on last week, asked him the same question. He said it's hard to find a lot of honest wines at that price, you know, yep. when honest can be interpreted a lot of ways, and you and I and him probably agree, you know. But I think that's a great answer because I think you're probably right. You cited a few makers, and I think a lot of my listeners, you know, are still California-looking wine drinkers, and you gave them some uh, options. Um, all right, so I didn't mention I'm going to post these answers on social media. We're going to start promoting um, right, you know, when the show drops and through the next week. Um, so you'll uh, be able to see Dan's answers. Dan, I have to do a quick wrap up and I have a couple questions for you and then we're out of here. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at Sam at the That's Sam at the Grape Nation. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Um, leave a review if you like the podcast and if you like the podcast, subscribe, you know, it'll show up every week. You don't have to go looking for it and you'll be reminded it's there. Um, follow us on Instagram at S Ben Ruby and on Twitter at Ben Ruby. I know they're not the same, but you can reach us on both with the hashtag, the grape nation. Um, we're on Facebook at the grape nation. As I mentioned, we'll post Dan's um, wine list recommendations on our social media sites. Um, Dan, where can we find more about you and Massacon? Where should people go? I mean, the show, I could have really sold Massacon wines because I believe in you and I believe the wines. We talked about it a lot. But, you know, I didn't pick you randomly. I picked you because I know you and I know you make great wines. So I want people, if their curiosity is peaked, to go somewhere. So where are the best places to go? So um, starting on the web, I mean, I don't spend a lot of time on my website building out kind of the detail that I should take some of the chat GPT answers and, and drop them into my website. But um, <laughs> website, the website uh, is the first place to find the wines. Um, with regards to social media, Matsakon Winery on Instagram, I've, uh, I'm doing a lot of cooking techniques and cooking videos and writing a cookbook um, on my Instagram and my TikTok. And so you're not gonna go there to find out a lot about wine, but you're gonna find out a lot about, you know, the ethos of our brand, which is about right. eating and drinking and food. Well, and there's the brand and there's Dan and there's both, you know, they, they find certain places and intersect and all of that. Um, so wait, what'd you say the Instagram handle was? 
it's just um, at Masakan Winery, which is the same for Pinterest, which is the same for TikTok, which okay. is the same for Twitter. Is there any Dan Petrosky <laughs> stuff or you want people to go to uh Masakan? Oh, no, for sure. Yeah, Dan Petrosky at, uh, at, 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 at Dan P- Petrosky on Instagram. Just so everyone knows, P-E-T-R-O-S-K-I, Petrosky. Um, and quickly, before we bolt out of here, um, you know, some of your content's very rich because, like I said earlier, you know, you're a guy who's done a lot of things and dabbles in a lot of things. You know, you'll cover art, you'll cover culture and all of that. But tell me about um, this cookbook because I've seen a lot of social media, you know, dedicated to um, the project, you know, where you're cooking and recipes and all that. What's the woman's name again? Uh, Sarah Hellman. She's a, she's a chef on the project and Jordan McKay is the, uh, author who's a prolific project. author, you know, especially with wine people and all that. Um, when is that coming out? Uh, we're writing it in real time. So every month we, uh, we post a new chapter. It's a regional oh, guide okay. to Italian wine, uh, wine dinner parties. So, uh, we'll, okay. we'll, instead of having to go to five or six books to, to put Very together cool. a, a dinner party for your friends and family, if you're interested in a Sicilian or Ligurian or Piemontese or Friulian dinner, we'll put together, uh, you can just go right straight to learn the history, the culture, the food, the wine of those regions in brief. And then you'll have a whole dinner party menu to put together with it. Um, five to six dishes, including, you know, an aperitivo hour to, you know, all the way through to dessert. So it's been a really fun project for me. Yeah, and we're, again, we're releasing it on videos on in, on social media on tiktok right. instagram um the actual chapters are being released on substack uh our newsletter so we don't uh, we don't force that on anyone we ask people to subscribe and if they wish to subscribe and uh it's been a really great way to just to kind of again create the ethos of what masakan is which is uh it's, you know, and, and who you are and, not just yeah. masakan which is you but you know who you are too i mean these yeah. are the loves and passions um all right, we got to go, but did we have fun chipping away at AI and ChatGPT? Was it worth taking it on like this? I think this was the best. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. I think we, you can go in there yourself and get these answers and not be satisfied, but having real-life comparisons side-by-side side like this, yeah. I hope people find uh, uh, find this useful. And I wasn't yanking people when I earlier said I really couldn't think of anyone else, you know, that could kind of sit through this and help me really navigate it to where it should go. So I want to thank our guest, Dan Petrosky. Thank you to our engineer, Armin, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you have been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.